somebody asks you what you believe about God or why you believe what you believe about God, they just kind of up and ask you, my guess is you would be a little bit like me and you'd be a little overwhelmed by the suddenness of such a big question. I think a lot of us in the face of that question or those questions would probably hem and haw and do our best, but it would be a tough question if asked directly and on the spot. It's also a very important question, though, and it's one of the many reasons we're walking through this series together. If you weren't able to be with us last Sunday, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the message. Um, We've got the audio up on our website, also a video there on the website, or the video on our Facebook page. Because last week I introduced this series that we're going to be in as long as it takes, and we're calling it Real. And the idea here, to sum up what we shared last Sunday, is that we live in a world where the difference between real and fake is becoming more and more important, but the line between the two is becoming increasingly blurred. And when it comes to our faith and our understanding of God, it's important that we know what the truth is. It's important that we know what we believe, and it's important that we've done the work to figure it out for ourselves. You see, many of us have spent a good portion of our lives with someone else's faith, and we've never made it our own. And if that's us, we may may end up finding ourselves easily swayed by what's new or what's popular or what sounds good or what feels good. And so the idea of this series is for us to refocus on what's real and claim our faith as our own. We're going to do this in four parts, four kind of mini-series within this greater series we're calling Real by focusing on real God, real Savior, real change, and real impact. And so today we begin Real God. And I'll share with you that beyond Scripture, one of my main resources for this part of the series was a book called The Real God by Pastor Chip Ingram. Those questions I began this message with, being asked that question, what you believe about God or why you believe what you believe, those matter significantly. In fact, I'll say it this way, what you think about God shapes your whole relationship with Him. But just as important, if not more, is that what you believe God thinks about you determines how close you will grow toward Him. So if you haven't considered these things, if you're not sure what you think about God or you're not sure what He thinks about you, over the next several weeks we'll study some attributes of God, some characteristics of God that will better help us understand how He sees you and who He is. But before we get into the attributes, there are a few lenses I want to make sure we're willing to view God through before we get too deep here. We have to make sure we're looking correctly. And I say lenses because I, I recently had my first eye exam in quite some time. And uh, does anybody actually enjoy going to the eye doctor? Not really a fan. That's three services. One person has told me they enjoy going to the... Okay, somebody else just joined that party. I'll, I'll introduce you to the other person. You guys can have a little club. I, I do not enjoy getting my eyes examined. And there's one very particular reason. I am not a fan of the puff test. You all know what I'm talking about. If you've had an eye exam, I understand it's important. You've got to check for the signs of glaucoma. It's very important. But I can't hardly do it. We're talking like three or four tries per eye is a good day for me. And everyone makes it harder. And so I recently went and got my eyes checked for the first time in a long time. I was due. And I was nervous because that part drives me nuts. And she nailed both eyes first try. It was awesome. I was like, can we just sign you up to do all of those for me for the rest of my life, and I'll be good to go, because she, it was like no problem at all. 
That's the least part. One of the parts that I think is kind of fun is when they put a series of lenses in front of your eyes and ask you which one looks clearer. And so they'll drop lenses in front of your eyes and say, better one or two, better three or four, better five or six. And sometimes they switch it to letters and it completely throws you off and you say better A or B and you say, wait, I thought we were doing numbers. But the idea there is that they're trying to figure out which lens helps you see the best. They're trying to refine and get the, 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 the little details taken care of so you can really see. And so today what I want to do is I want to put a couple of lenses in front of us to make sure that, that we can better see the real God. These are truths that I believe we have to keep in mind in order to see God more clearly. The first lens is this, that, that God is not like us. And I know that may sound obvious on the surface, but I think that sometimes this is a reminder that we need. We understand that we're certainly made in God's image, but that does not mean we should consider God to be like us. Consider the words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 12. He writes, Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the spirit of the Lord? Who knows enough to give him advice or teach him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does he need instruction about what is good? Did someone teach him what is right or show him the path of justice? No. For all the nations of the world are but a drop in in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. And you go through the Old Testament, you read through the book of Isaiah, you read through the Psalms and some other places, and you find these amazing descriptions of God. That there is no one higher, that there is no one greater, that no one is like God. Nothing and no one compares. And so while we are created in His image, it's important that we remember that He is not like us in every way, and we need to keep that in mind. Lens number two is a reminder that it is tempting to reduce God to manageable terms. To put it simply, in order to feel like we understand God, and even in order to feel like we might be able to manage Him, we often put God in our own little box. We come up with our own idea of who God is, we put it in our terms, and we're good with those terms because they're comforting. They make us feel comfortable. Instead of embracing the fact that God is is ultimately beyond our understanding, we instead take our desire to understand Him in the wrong direction, and we end up with an unrealistic and even simplified version of who God is in our own life. It's kind of like the classic film, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Okay, I know that that's not necessarily a classic film, but there is a scene in that movie, if you haven't seen it, uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but, but there's this movie scene where they're around the dinner table, and Ricky Bobby is praying for dinner. And as he prays, he repeatedly refers to to Jesus as baby Jesus. He always says baby Jesus. And so someone questions him. They ask him, why do you always call, call him baby Jesus? And he says, I like the baby version. In his mind, that's the version of Jesus that he likes. The truth is, even though that's an exaggerated, ridiculous scene from a movie, a lot of us have our own version of God that we kind of cling to, that we might even defend If somebody questioned it, maybe we only like certain attributes of God that we read about in Scripture. So in our version of God, those attributes are emphasized. Like we're, We're cool with the fact that God is love, and so we emphasize love, but God is also just, and that's a little bit scary. So we try to de-emphasize the justice of God, and we make God fit into a manageable box for us 
that he doesn't belong in. It's key to understanding the real God that we resist that temptation to put God into manageable terms. Consider Paul's words in, in his letter to the Romans, writing about some folks who struggled with this exact thing, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. He writes, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. You see, we may not take it to that extreme, but we try to know God in our own terms. We try to define him within our own concept. And then the third lens uh, is something we need to be reminded of, that God can truly only be known as he reveals himself to us. We go look in a lot of places for information about God, but the truth is he has chosen in several ways to reveal himself to us, ways like through nature. You know, Ingram said it this way, he said, God has clearly written evidence of himself into the created order. What he's saying there is, you, if you look, you can't miss it. Consider what the psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 19, beginning verse 1. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. If you can view the complicated beauty of nature and not see the hand of God in that, look again. Look again. Because God reveals himself in that way. He also reveals himself through his word. You know, the Bible is not just a book to read. It is God communicating with us, and we need to see it that way. You know, it's not just a book of ancient history. It's no relic to be left on the shelf. Specifically, especially as you read through the Old Testament, it's a, it's a revealing picture of who God is. It's God revealing himself to his people, and therefore, as we read it, to us. Consider the way the writer of Hebrews spoke about it. In Hebrews chapter 1, beginning verse 1. He writes this, is long ago... God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. See, they knew God because God spoke through these writings. We can read the same words of those same prophets and understand God. And then he goes on to show us another way that God reveals himself. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. And that's the third way that God reveals himself through his son. I love the way it's written there. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. You see, we could probably boil this whole part of this, this greater series down to saying, if you want to understand more about God, study Jesus. Study Jesus. And so when you consider those three ways that God reveals himself to us, and you put them all together, it's still true that we won't ever fully understand everything about God in this life, but we can get a pretty solid picture of the real God if we're looking with the right lens in the right place. And when we look with the right lenses in the right places, we'll begin to see these important attributes of God emerge, these things we need to better understand about who God is, and we'll begin today with his goodness. Now, if I simply say God is good, 
Somebody inevitably will say all, this, all, all the time. Now, that's not something we do regularly around here, so I'm not surprised that the only person who has actually done it uh, the last two services is my wife, who was in the previous service, and therefore is kind of a plant. It would have worked better if she was sitting about here, but, uh, but it works. Typically, if someone says God is good, a group of people, especially at church, will say all the time, and then say all the time, and they'll say God is good. Maybe you've never experienced that. If you haven't, I'm guessing it would be weird the first time people around you all just audibly respond. But a lot of us like this attribute of God a lot. We talk about the goodness of God and that God is good. We sing about it. We'll even tell other people about this one. We'll tell other people that God is good. But the question becomes, do we really understand what exactly that means? I would suggest that most of us probably don't have a full picture of what that means. Because when we think of God's goodness, I think our minds typically go to the good things God does, or maybe even more so, the good things God gives to me. We think of blessings. And while I won't dispute that those are elements of the goodness of God, it's also important to understand that when we're talking about the goodness of God, it's more about who He is than what He does or certainly what He gives us. It's an innate goodness it's one of the biggest reasons that we should trust God and believe that he won't fail us, because he is good. We look at a song like Psalm 84, 11. We read, For the Lord God is our sun and our shield. He gives us grace and glory. The Lord will withhold no good thing from those who do what is right. That ultimately he has all the good and he's willing to give it. If you want a book definition, you could say it this way, The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent and full of goodwill toward men. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes total pleasure in the happiness of his people. And I I like that definition, but it's also important to remember that those are human terms to describe the goodness of God. And really, all of his attributes go beyond a definition that we as humans could formulate. God's goodness is best understood, then, when it is observed and experienced. Consider Moses. As you read through the Old Testament, it's clear that Moses had a strong desire to know God, and he also had opportunities that not very many people had to experience God on a different level. I mean, consider that he heard God's voice in the burning bush. He saw God's miracles firsthand in Egypt. He was front and center at the parting of the Red Sea. He experienced God's provision with manna from heaven when God's people were in the wilderness. Moses had seen so much of God, but he wanted to see more. We read in Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 18. Moses responded, Then show me your glorious presence. And the Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name Yahweh before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. And see, Moses wanted to see it all. He wanted to see the glory of God, but that would have been too dangerous. So instead, God passed in front of him all his goodness. And we get this picture of what happened one chapter later in Exodus 34, beginning of verse 5. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. (coughs) Excuse me. Filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. 
lavishing, unfailing love. You see, there's an important idea that I think we need to connect with goodness. It's a word that we need to connect with goodness to better understand the goodness of God, and that's the word generosity. To boil it down to basics, God is good, and that does mean that he gives us good things, but God also never gives in order to get. There's no expected reciprocation. There's no manipulation. God's goodness is shown and given freely and generously. Which sounds amazing, but you may find yourself saying, I want to believe that God is good. I've seen it in Scripture. I've even seen it maybe in my own life, but I've also seen a lot of bad in my life, and it's hard for me to believe that God is, is completely good. But understand that there are ways ongoing that God reveals His goodness to us. He reveals it to us through natural blessings. Things that we overlook a lot of the days of our lives, but, but the beauty of our world, the order of creation, the little things that God provides. David wrote about it, recorded in Psalm 145, beginning verse 7, when he said, Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. We're included in that everyone and that all creation that he speaks of. But beyond the daily blessings, the natural blessings, God also reveals his goodness through specific deliverance. When we ask God for something and we receive it, that is specific deliverance. Psalm 107, beginning of verse 1, says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. Tell others He has redeemed you from your enemies. And we won't read that whole psalm today because it goes on for quite a while, but understand that the psalmist goes on to assert that God rescues people from their enemies. He saves us from death. He heals us from disease. He protects us from the storms of this life. And that He does all of those things specifically specifically because he is good. And don't miss that emphasis. He doesn't do it because we ask. He doesn't do it because we deserve it. He doesn't do it because it's the right thing to do or something like that. He does it because he is good. The only reasoning is God's goodness. And ultimately, God reveals his goodness through Jesus. Really, the the best example of any aspect of God's character is found in Jesus. Consider Paul's reminder to the Colossians when he said this in Colossians chapter 1, beginning of verse 15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. You see so much of God's goodness in the person of Jesus. It's in the undeserved goodness that he gave in giving up his life for us, even though we didn't deserve it. It's in the promise of future and ongoing goodness and blessing. There are so many ways. Consider Romans 5.8. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. I think sometimes we get it in our heads that, that we have to do something to earn God's love, that we have to do something to earn God's grace. 
And it's almost like we read this verse and we change the words and we say, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us once we were good enough. Or God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us once we had reached a certain level of spiritual maturity. Or once we had eliminated a certain amount of sin. And that's not what it says because that's not what he did. God showed his great love by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And the promise doesn't end there in Romans 8.32, where it says, Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? And see, that's where I wonder if we don't just a little, struggle a little too much with trusting God's goodness. Because if we understand that God made the ultimate sacrifice for us, why do we so struggle to trust him? Even in the little things. Even in the daily things. The bottom line on God's goodness is that he is good. He proved it through Jesus Christ, and his goodness will continue and can be trusted. That's a real picture of who God is, that he is good. But there is one problem, and I refuse to ignore it this morning. There is a category of question, a series of questions, really, that come up when we talk about the goodness of God. And those questions, they go a little something like this. If God is good, why do bad things happen? If God is good, why would he allow sickness and disease? If God is good, then why doesn't he always answer our prayers the way we ask? If God is good, why are there natural disasters? And if God is good, why would he allow anyone to be condemned to hell? Those are real questions. Those are heavy questions. You see why in light of a talk on God's goodness, I can't ignore these questions because you or people in your life or both have these questions. They are questions that matter, probably each of them to all of us, because bad things do happen. Sickness and disease do happen, and they happen to us and to those that we love. We ask for healing, we ask for deliverance, and we don't always receive it in the way or in the time frame that we desire it. Natural disasters, they they seem so counter to God's goodness. And we all know people that are likely headed for hell if we can't reach them with the love of God. So if we're really going to understand and believe that God is good and that his goodness can be trusted, we have to find some sort of answer to those questions. And we may not really like the answer. I'll tell you that before I even share it with you. But the answer is found in the other attribute of God I want to share with you this morning. And that's God's sovereignty. I can't remember the first time I heard that term as it applies to God, but I can only assume that I had no idea what it meant. It's one of those big words that we throw out every once in a while to describe God, maybe because we've seen it in Scripture or because we've heard someone else talk about it. But I want to make sure we at least have a baseline understanding of it today because it really is the best answer I have for those heavy questions. And I know I kind of steered us beyond a dictionary definition of goodness, but the dictionary definition of sovereignty actually becomes pretty helpful here. It means above or superior to all others, chief, greatest, supreme, supreme in power, rank, or authority, of or holding the position of ruler, royal, reigning, independent of all others. That's what sovereignty means. And then I'll add to it what A.W. Tozer explained about God's sovereignty. He said God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules his entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, 
all-powerful, and absolutely free. Basically, God is before all things. He created all things. He upholds all things. He is above all things. He knows all things. He can do all things. He accomplishes all things. He rules over all things, and he is in control of all things, which means that there will be things about God that we won't be able to fully understand in this life. It means that we won't always see things the way that God sees things. We see what is in front of us. We see what is right in front of us right now. God sees eternally in both directions and everywhere and every when all at once. We cannot begin to comprehend the all-knowing power of God. He is truly above and superior to all others. And I'll tell you something I imagine you know already, that no other religion's God makes that claim or a claim even close to that. And no one begins to back it up either. And it's one thing to say I'm sovereign. It's another thing to so regularly reveal it. And while God's sovereignty is extremely difficult for our human understanding to grasp, it doesn't change the fact that we can still see places and ways that God reveals it, both through history, through Scripture, through our own lives. In so many ways. God sets himself apart through his titles. He refers to himself as sovereign. He refers to himself as the Most High, the Alpha, the Omega, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the I Am, and the Eternal One. And when we see him for those titles, for those names he gives to himself, it doesn't allow us to see him as just another God. But he goes beyond that and he sets himself apart through his promises. Consider Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. That's not a promise that can be made unless the maker of the promise knows all and is over all from beginning to end and beyond, unless the maker of the promise has unlimited power and all wisdom. And yet God makes that promise and he keeps that promise because he's sovereign. God sets himself apart through history, through fulfilled prophecy. Consider the Old Testament. Consider the history of the nation of Israel. If you read through that from our perspective, and we get to see it from 30,000 feet, we get to see it from above, you see that no matter what was going on for God's people, He was still in control. Through the good and the bad and the ups and the downs, He was there. Consider simply the story of Joseph, whose life was a roller coaster with more ups and downs than any theme park. If you haven't read his story, you should. Genesis 37 through 50 is where you'll find it. And if you read it, what you'll see is so many times where Joseph should have lost hope, but he trusted God, and God proved his sovereignty over Joseph's life and over the universe. And then consider prophecy after prophecy written about, and then generations later fulfilled. God is over all. He is sovereign. And he proved that he was even sovereign over death through the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. See, the truth is, if we take the time to view the evidence of God's sovereignty, even just in Scripture, but but adding to that uh, things we've seen in our own lives, in our own histories, I believe the Holy Spirit will birth and build faith in us that God is, in fact, sovereign. Even though it's a concept that is difficult to understand, I believe that we can have confidence that God is sovereign. And in the belief that God is sovereign comes trust that His goodness might not always fall within our understanding, but it doesn't mean it's not goodness. 
And in that, in that trust, comes something amazing. Something I think we need in the face of those difficult questions, and that's peace. The understanding that even if this life makes no sense, even if this life is difficult, God is still in control. There is a peace found in truly believing that. See, down through history, people have tried and tried to understand, to define, and to explain the sovereignty of God, and volumes and volumes of words have been written about it, but that doesn't make it all that much easier to understand because it is a concept that is just a bit above us. But I think it comes down to this, and again, this explanation likely falls short as well. God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he chose to give us free will. And because he gave us free will, we have the willful opportunity to say yes or no to him. We have the opportunity to freely love or reject him. But in that freedom comes the need for pain to be a part of life. The goodness of God remains clear and unchanged and that before the foundation of the earth, God knew the only remedy for that pain that would come would be Jesus as he would come and die to pay the price that restored our relationship with God. I go back to that promise we read from Romans just a few moments ago. In chapter 8, verse 28, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. You see, that verse can be a struggle for a lot of us sometimes. Sometimes we want to bust that out in the face of tragedy, and it's difficult because we have trouble seeing through the tragedy how good could possibly come from that. Sometimes we actually kind of miscategorize this verse as something that says everything happens for a reason. And so we throw that out there too. And it just, it's not that helpful in the face of tragedy, even if it's still true. Even if Romans 8.28 is still true. But if we believe in and understand the goodness and the sovereignty of God, it means we will eventually understand that all that comes into our lives is either allowed or decreed by a good God who will use it for our benefit. Now, I'm not saying that's an easy place to get to, to where you trust and believe that everything that comes into your life is either allowed or decreed by a good God who can do good things with it. You can't just snap your fingers and be there, but it's a place to shoot for, for sure. Because then you get to the point where you say, man, I'm having this marriage conflict, but you know that God can work it for good. You're having issues with your children, and you understand God can work it for good. Your financial situation, your emotional scars, your hurts, your history, whatever it is, you begin to understand and confidently believe that God can and will work it for good. And even when you don't get to see the good directly, even if it doesn't happen the way you expect it or the way you want it to, God is still sovereign and he is still good, which means that you can trust him and rest in him. When you understand the goodness and sovereignty of God, Oswald Chambers said it this way. He said, you can absolutely refuse to worry. Now that sounds like something we'd love. If you truly believe that God is in control, you can absolutely refuse to worry. Because at the end of the day, no matter what happens in this life, God is still on his throne and he still has an eternity for us with him where there won't be sickness or pain or natural disasters. Any of those struggles we talked about, none of that suffering. 
And I'm not saying we shouldn't concern ourselves with suffering in this life. We absolutely should pray and care for the hurting, do all of those things, but we can do so without worrying because ultimately we believe that God is in control. So just because life isn't going your way doesn't mean God isn't good. Sometimes we're tempted to, to, to draw that line in the sand. We say, life kind of stinks lately, that's God's fault. Just because life isn't going your way doesn't mean God isn't good. It means the world is fallen. It means that there is sin in the world. But God is sovereign and good is coming. Even if it's not what you expect or desire, even if it's not in this life. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your goodness. God, I pray that that we wouldn't lose sight of it, that even in the midst of struggles and trials and even tragedies, that we would not lose sight of your goodness. God, I pray that we would measure it up beside your sovereignty. We would have the perspective that that gives us to understand that not only are you good, but you are in control. If the one who is in control is ultimately good, I I pray that we would understand that we have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. I'd help each and every day us to, to, to strive to put more and more of our trust in you because that's where it belongs. People will let us down We'll let ourselves down. Systems will let us down. But God, you've never let us down and you never will. Let that drive us to better follow you. Now we're thankful to know you in this way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.